So when I was in school, and you may have had a similar experience, and this might be the mark of the quality of education I received when I was younger. <laughs> when I was in school, I was taught the story in history class of Ponce de Leon. Have any of you heard that story about Ponce de Leon? The story was that he was searching for the fountain of youth, and on the way to trying to find the fountain of youth, he accidentally discovered Florida. Whoops. And if you've heard that story, then you'll know that the fountain of youth was water uh, that could restore you to a young and healthy state. There's not a lot of solid basis, though, for the story attaching Ponce de Leon's discovery of Florida to a search for the Fountain of Youth, though. And the story might even come from a later writer kind of having a smear campaign against him to kind of make him look bad. But this idea, though, that a water source or, or something else that can grant health or youth or vigor or immortality is one that pops up throughout history, and it shows up in pop culture all over the place, all over the place, right? You know, spoilers, but in the Harry Potter novels, right, the evil disembodied wizard Voldemort, he's searching for the Philosopher's Stone in the first book that will grant him eternal life and restore him. You know, and we have like all of these garbage vampire shows and novels, you know, where people are turned because of the desire to live forever, free from aging. You know, and then we have even in, in uh, older novels, right, the portrait of Dorian Gray, the main character, he stays the same age, but his picture, his painting ages instead. And, the, and the, the decay of his painting kind of mirrors the decay of his soul, even as his outward appearance is forever young. And we see a yearning for longer and longer life. And we search for it in all the wrong places. You know, celebrities, instead of aging gracefully, they turn to possibly tested you know, hormone treatments to offset the effects of aging, you know, trying to look at 70 like they did when they were, were 30. And I think this desire for more life is something we all have in common, generally speaking. But as Christians, we believe that we actually will get more life, eternal life. And that eternal life is not going to be like a bored immortal who's lived for a thousand years and doesn't see the point anymore, right? But it's going to be our ongoing and ever-deepening fulfillment of our union with God. So looking at the Gospel of John's reading this morning, I'm going to talk about glory and eternal life. So in that portion of scripture that we heard from the Gospel of John, that's traditionally called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And the reason why it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus is because on the day of atonement, the high priest would pray. And the high priest would pray for himself, the high priest would pray for the Levites and the priests, and he would also pray for the congregation of Israel. A commentator named Hunter notes that, that Jesus here in this text, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for those who will come to believe in him in the, in the days and weeks and years to come, which is why it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And this happens here in chapter 17, the prayer goes on, but in this chapter, right, Jesus prays his prayer what happens immediately following this in John chapter 18? Well, we have the arrest of Jesus leading to his crucifixion. So this is right before he begins to atone for the sins of the world. Also, this is the reason why it's also called the high priestly prayer. We see this 
idea, a concept of Jesus as our high priest in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, which says in 4.14a, since we then have a great high priest, or in Hebrews 5.5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to me, so who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So we see this role as Jesus, as our high priest, who prays for himself, who prays for his disciples, and who prays for his followers that will come after them. And he says here in this prayer, the hour has come. The hour has come. And then he refers to this hour coming as glorification, right? Glorify your son that your son might glorify you. So we have to ask ourselves this glorification that Jesus is referring to, what, what is he speaking of here? Well, it's speaking of the passion. I mean, it, it might be odd, right, to think of the cross as glorification, right? But, but what does John say in 1232? John 1232, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, right? And as he is lifted up, what's going to happen? He's going to draw all nations to himself, right? So there's this connection between glorification and his death on the cross, we don't like to think of glorification that way because in our minds of glorification, we think of sparkles and, and light shooting out everywhere, right? You know, ah, angelic, like beams from heaven <laughs> shooting out and illuminating. And that does happen right at the resurrection. But his, his self-giving death, his atoning for our sins as our high priest is also a part of his being glorified. And it's through this loving self-giving of the Son of God this is going to bring greater glory to God in the salvation offered to all people through the death of his son. And there's mutuality here, right? The son glorifies the father through his passion as the father glorifies the son. And this glory, Jesus says, is also eternal life. And he says what eternal life is in verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when we think about eternal life, like I said in the introduction, part of the problem when we deal with eternal life is we kind of try to figure out, well, what is it going to be like? What is it going to be like? <laughs> so in, in, in popular culture, right, they imagine that eternal life is life kind of always fixed within the bounds of what life is already like now. Does that make sense? When, when popular culture, movies and books and stuff, when they talk about characters who live forever, their living forever is always bound up within what our life or what our world is like right now in the present or in the past. There's no supernatural aspect to it, really. There's nothing beyond the confines of this world, right? So the only thing that they have to judge what eternal life is going to be like is, well, what's life like right now for all of us? And then how is that going to unfold through history as these characters kind of never age? Hence the boredom, right, of immortal characters in popular fiction. Nothing around them really changes, right? Even though there kind of is change in the world, they kind of stay static. The world changes around them in regards to the flow of history and maybe technological development. But what never is dealt with is the sinfulness of humanity, the depravity of humanity and how that sinfulness is dealt with. And it isn't usually, right, because sin doesn't exist for many people. 
Sin for most people is an outdated concept that progress has delivered us from. <laughs> now we know more about the sciences, so sin isn't actually a thing. Or so it's believed. Anyway, let's talk a little bit more about eternal life, right? And in this light, many Christians, we don't get eternal life right either. Because for a lot of Christians, right, when we think of what eternal life is, we think of disembodied existence like up there somewhere in heaven. But brothers and sisters, we have to understand, we have to know the Christian message isn't that we need to get saved so we can go to heaven when we die, right? As if salvation were just some type of change in your final destination, right? Salvation is deeper than that. Salvation is not just getting your spiritual ticket punched on the 915 flight to the heavenly city. Salvation is rescue from something. Rescue from something. I remember a while back, after I graduated from seminary, I was eating, I, I was with my family, and we went to a restaurant, a Brazilian steakhouse, and one of my closest friends came with me to eat. And we were sitting there having a great time. And if you've ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse, if you're really hungry and you want to eat a lot of meat, I highly recommend it. <laughs> but what they do is, is they bring you different cuts of meat from different animals. You know, so there'll be like chicken, eh. and then they'll be, have beef, and then all sorts of really good stuff. And they bring it on these giant skewers, and they kind of just put it on your plate like that. And there's usually like a flag or like a color thing that you can flip over for more and flip over for, you know, I'm done. So we were sitting there really enjoying ourselves, stuffing our faces, <laughs> and uh, my friend started to choke on a piece of steak that he had eaten, and he couldn't breathe, right? So he's kind of like, uh, he gets up from the table, so I, I'm like, oh no. So I, I got up, I went around him, I did the Heimlich maneuver, and <laughs> out popped a piece of steak, and all right, he could breathe again. What did he say, what do you think he said to me after I did that? And what he started to tell people what I did for him afterwards. Well, Mike probably saved my life. And so when we tell the story, sometimes we'll say, tell him about the time you saved my life, right? I rescued him from something. And when we think about salvation, our salvation is being saved from something, right? We are saved from death and sin. And our salvation is realized at the final judgment when we are saved from the outpouring of God's justice on those who worked evil. That act of salvation, then, brothers and sisters, is eternal. If we have been freed from death, and if we've been saved from death, then that means once we are raised, we will inhabit a renewed and resurrected body, living on and inhabiting a renewed and recreated earth, which means our lives, our eternal life, will be very different from what they are now. Our eternal life in the age to come will not be bound up with what life is like now. Movies and TV and video games. We have no concept of what life is like in the age to come because it's going to be beyond anything we have the words to describe. Because our eternal life is bound up in knowing God. So, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean to know God? Because Jesus said, eternal life is knowing God, the true God of Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right? So we know that eternal life is knowing the true God. So if it's knowing the true God, then what does that mean then? 
It means that there are false gods out there. There are false gods everywhere. And in the ancient world, they had a lot of them. They had a lot of them. And I preached about that, I think, last week when I preached on St. Paul's uh, speech at the Areopagus. You can go to the podcast and listen to that if you haven't heard it. The true God. But eternal life, or sorry, knowing God, right, is not just like having facts or bits of information memorized about God. Eternal life is communion with God. It's communion with God, right? This, it's not just knowing something about it, but it's, it's an ongoing, ever-deepening relationship, experience of God. So I'm going to use a really flawed analogy right now that maybe hopefully will help you get an idea of what I'm trying to say. So let me liken it to education. So right now, you have online those people who go on YouTube and they repost right all of these conspiracy videos that they see. There's one right now called Plandemic that's been making the rounds, which is absolute garbage, by the way. And these people might watch hours and hours and hours of these conspiracy theory videos and think that they know more about vaccinations or more about the coronavirus than medical professionals. But when we think about that, we have to think about medical professionals like this, right? So experts are people who have been trained in their field. And they have more than just information they've memorized from watching YouTube videos. What happens is they have a foundation of something. And then their expertise is built on top of that foundation. So for me, when I went to Bible college, I had a grounding in Bible and practical ministry and basic theology. And on top of that, I was a voracious reader and tried to fill in some of the gaps that way. Later on, I went to seminary, and on top of my previous foundation went another more specialized layer. I studied more church history. I got deeper into Old Testament and New Testament uh, theology and, and, and books and, and history and grammar, Hebrew and Greek and all that stuff, right? So the knowledge that I have about the Bible doesn't just come from knowing stuff, memorizing facts, but the progressive building up of that knowledge based on the structure that all of that knowledge rests, right? So it's not that when I talk about God or theology or church history, it's not that I'm trying to remember something that I watched online a long time ago. It's something that's a part of me. It's something that I've integrated and it affects who I am as a person. So that's kind of, I told you, <laughs> it's, it's not the perfect analogy. And if you push them, they'll all fall apart, right? But that's kind of how I see communion with God. It's not our memorization of stuff about God, but rather this ongoing, ever-deepening, never-exhausted journey into our infinite God and never reaching the stage where we've had enough. As St. Gregory of Nyssa said, this truly is the vision of God, never to be satisfied in the desire to see him, but one must always, by looking at what he can see, rekindle his desire to see more. Thus, no limit would interrupt the growth in the ascent to God, since no limits to the good can be found, nor is the increasing of the desire for the good brought to an end because it is satisfied. Wow. So let's talk a little bit here about glory. And it's referenced a few more times here in this text. And like I mentioned a little bit earlier, we see this mutuality in glory being shared between the Father and the Son. 
And in verse 4, Jesus said, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So what is this referring to? Jesus is obedient to the will of the Father and fulfilled his Father's divine will. John speaks of Jesus committing these seven signs, and he calls these signs specifically. And these signs speak to his identity and mission. Jesus glorified God. St. Theophilact wrote, The work of the only begotten Son incarnate is to sanctify our nature, to overthrow the ruler of this world who made himself out to be God, and to plant the knowledge of God in creation. This work, then, brothers and sisters, brings glory to the Father. Jesus then asks the Father to be glorified. In verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So we see right here in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaking that he was always with the Father from the beginning. And remember how John's Gospel began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This speaks to the mystery of the Incarnation, the eternal Word and Son of the Father becoming human. Here Jesus is asking the Father that the glory that he had from the beginning be given to him again. Remember, Jesus clothed his glory in humanity, right? He took upon human nature. And it's not a stretch here to say that the glory he's asking is the glory of the resurrection. He's already spoken about the glory in regards to being crucified. But now he's speaking of the glory of the resurrection. When the glory he's always had from before the world existed, shining forth, through his now divinized flesh. Then Jesus is glorified in his disciples. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Jesus prays that he will be glorified through his disciples. Jesus has revealed himself and God the Father to him and soon will reveal the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He has taught them all he was sent to teach them and they now understand that he was sent by the Father. He also prays that they may be kept in safety and in unity. And you might think, well, safety? Why would they need to be kept in safety? Well, because of the work that Jesus tasks them to do. And remember, right, what we heard read in the epistle to Peter, right, where, where he wrote saying, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So as followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we need to be aware that Christ, as he prayed for his disciples being kept by the Father, are you Christ's disciple? Are you? Cindy, Rick, Jen, Megan, Donna, are you Christ's disciple? Steve, Ray, Sandy, me, am I Christ's disciple? Yes. If we have been incorporated into Christ through faith and baptism, we are Christ's. That means then, brothers and sisters, we are his disciples too. And Jesus' prayer here for the apostles before the Spirit is sent to them, before he's glorified through his crucifixion and through his resurrection, he's asking them to be kept. That means we as his disciples too. He's praying for us to be kept. That means that the Holy Spirit that he's going to give to the disciples soon is the same Holy Spirit that's going to be given to us. And we're going to celebrate that next Sunday at Pentecost. He prays they may be kept in safety and in unity. 
and the work that they do after Jesus ascends to heaven will continue to bring glory to Jesus Christ and to the Father. He asks that they may be kept as one. This is hard for us to hear, brothers and sisters, because we live in such a fractious age where there's the number is disputed, right? There's, I've heard it said there's something in between 5,000 and you know, 30,000 different Protestant denominations or sects you know, here in, that exist kind of like in the world. So you might have to ask ourselves, that's before we even begin to continue, uh, consider more traditional expressions of a Christian faith, like Roman Catholicism and, and the Orthodox Church and, and maybe the Anglican Church. How can we all be kept in safety and how can we be all united? And there have been different ways in history where people have tried to unite different churches. And our denomination has that history too. It's the coming together of these uh, major and minor streams of the Reformation into, into one body. But Jesus prays for our unity. He prays for our unity. But we also have to remember, brothers and sisters, that our unity is also dependent upon our fidelity to Jesus Christ as revealed to us in Scripture through the teaching of the apostles. Like it says, they continued, right, in the apostolic teaching, the breaking of the bread and prayers. It says this in the book of Acts. So Jesus is glorified in us, in me, in you. And he prays for our safety because, brothers and sisters, he sends us out. And just as Jesus was glorified in his crucifixion, this gave Christians, given the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, it gave them strength to see their own martyrdom as glorifying Christ. That their own death, that their own death, their own murder by the hands of the state was their glorification as it witnessed to Christ. As it what talks about here in 1 Peter, about sharing, right, in, in, in the sufferings uh, that Christ suffered in. But one day those sufferings will be over. And that's also part of our eternal life in Christ, that one day Christ will return. We heard that in the Acts reading. The angel said to the people gathered, the way Jesus left you're going, is the same way that you're going to see him come back. Now, when he left, how did he leave? Invisible? Did he just vanish? That says he was carried up out of their sight. So they, so they saw him ascend. What does that mean then? When he returns, is he going to be visible or invisible? Is Jesus going to secretly come back and, you know, and zap a bunch of Christians up to heaven? and leave their clothes behind, you know, kind of like lying on the ground, like, you know, the, the, the books and the movies left behind and all that. No, that's not how it works. That's not how Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back visibly and in glory. And when he does, that is, maybe we could say, well, the beginning of the end and, the end, and, and leading to the new beginning, right? When our eternal life is fully realized. Our eternal life is fully realized. And brothers and sisters, if you're sitting there, and you're struggling in your faith, if you're sitting there and you're unsure about the future, if you're sitting there downtrodden and sad about the coronavirus or maybe something bad has happened in your family or maybe all of this is, is causing friction between you and other people, know that Christ, just as he prayed for his disciples and then sends them out, he prays for you too. Take comfort in that, that Christ knows you 
that Christ knows what you're going through and that Christ knows your suffering. And he is with you in your suffering. And in that suffering, God will be glorified and you will see something of the goodness of God and you will bring glory to God just as God will glorify you. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our high priest who prays for us, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen.